This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP, the federal leader in retirement planning seminars, sponsored by WEPA. Join NITP for an hour of plain talk on planning your future. You've got questions, they've got answers. Welcome to For Your Benefit. Today is, <clears throat> excuse me, October 16th, 2023. I'm Bob Lines, and we're happy to greet our special guest, Brian Curris, certified financial planner. And Brian has been um, teaching seminars with us for how many years? Oh, it's been about five or six now, Bob. Yeah. And, and thanks uh, for having me. Great to be back on. <laughs> Great for staying. Um, not that we have trouble with people staying. Anyway, so we're going to talk about cash flow planning and debt payoff strategies. And I bet you could uh, spend three hours on that, but um, <laughs> where do we start here? Well, I think one of the biggest cash flow questions is going to be how much of an emergency fund do you need? And then where should I be parking these assets? Uh, I think big picture, we want at a minimum about three months of living expenses, ideally six months plus. That way, if and when something unplanned comes up and there will be unplanned expenses from time to time, whether it's loss of income, medical bills, car repair, new roof, whatever it may be, that I'm not stuck having to run up a credit card at a high interest rate or take a hardship withdrawal from my TSP or anything like that. Uh, so ideally, I want three to six months of living expenses as a starting point to help protect me for those types of situations. Now, in, in those dollars set aside for that, are they invested you know, across the board, you know, risk-free, you know, interest CD types, and then maybe wait in the water and get into um, financial planning side. But does that chunk of cash get all three of those focuses? So key elements, I want my emergency fund to be liquid so that it's there when I need it. And I want it to be safe. Uh, most obvious options would be checking, savings, money market accounts, things like that. I could potentially consider a CD certificate of deposit, but those will have a little bit of penalties. If I am in a two year CD and I need the money next week, what kind of interest penalty am I going to face as a result? So I, I tend to want to make sure it's liquid, although I could build in CDs a little bit for it. Uh, I'll give March 2020 as an example. You know, I don't want to have my emergency fund in stocks. And then whether it's loss of income or medical bills, a lot of people needed to access emergency fund money in that time frame. What was happening at the same time? Well, the market was crashing 30%. So if it's late March 2020, either A, I may not have enough there because my investments are down 30% or B, I still have enough there, but I'm now selling when the market's down 30%. And it doesn't matter if those stocks recover later in the year, that money that I've sold and spent never has a chance to recover with it. So for the first three to six months, I want to keep that very safe. Once I get above and beyond that, once I build up the equivalent of a year, two years beyond of living expenses, then I could start to build in and a non-retirement account, some stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, because that money will have a much longer time horizon associated with it. Now, when you fund the fund, uh, do you include uh, very cautious CD uh, type things as well as um, stocks, mutual funds and whatnot? So there's a, there's, a, there's a piece of the pie that maybe is devoted for, well, if I need it, it's cash, and I can get to the cash quickly, but I don't want everything stuck in cash. Well, so as I just said, for that three to six months, I want checking liquid and safe. So checking savings, money markets. That said, I don't need the entire, say, six months sitting in a checking account earning zero interest. One of the beneficiaries of higher interest rates have been that we're finally seeing high yield savings and money market accounts pushing four or five percent plus. Ideally, I think we would keep 
the next couple weeks worth of expenses in our checking account. And then we would have a savings account. If it's linked at the same bank, great. If I need to go to a different bank because it's it's paying a higher rate, uh, then I could still set up an EFT, electronic funds transfer, where I could move that money from savings in about one business day. And that way I've got the majority of that three to six months earning four or 5% plus while keeping whatever's in my checking account just for the immediate expenses. Uh, and again, I really don't want to build in the stocks or you know, even most of my bonds and things like that till I get above the six month emergency fund cushion uh, because there's going to be risk. And I don't want to risk that I need that money at a time when it's down and I don't want to sell. All right. So when when one looks at their debt and debt service on the debt, you know, debt meaning home mortgage, uh, maybe investment in the market, maybe investment in CDs and the like. Um, mm -hmm. So if we're looking at that and we're going to take money out, which debt should we pay first? In other words, here's a chunk of cash, if you will. And we talk, talked about what's inside of that cash. Um, then what do we look at first to pay off if we have things that should be paid off? Yeah. So I think there's really only one way that I want to tackle this. I see a couple different strategies out there, but there's only one that I actually want to use. And that is to focus on the highest interest rate. So regardless of what the balance is i want to look at you know, here's my car loan my home loan my credit card whatever it may be student loan and i want to focus on which one has the highest interest rate that's the one that's costing me the most money and i want to take everything i have and look to pay off that highest rate account first once i've done that then i want to say okay now which one has the highest rate and i want to work my way down that will save me the most amount of interest. Uh, now, if there is some very unique parameters, if it's a student loan and I'm thinking maybe I can still get forgiveness on it, then maybe that's going to factor into the equation. But aside from unique circumstances like that, I just want to look at the highest interest rate and work my way down. Uh, there's a strategy out there to pay off the lowest balance first. This is going to help us knock out accounts, organize a number of liabilities, the problem with that is, is if we're paying off a lower balance that also has a lower interest rate, we're costing ourselves money, all for the benefit of maybe seeing progress a little more visibly than we might otherwise or, or something along those lines. Uh, and I'm really not a fan of that. My, my goal is to just pay as little in interest as possible. And that starts and ends with paying down accounts based on the highest interest rate first. So when uh, dealing with folks, what do you find... You know, I won't call it surprising, but they say I wasn't aware of that and I wasn't aware of the dynamics of paying something off today rather than, you know, <clears throat> having a modest interest rate and just keep funding it. So how do you how do you leave them to, to the chapel? Yeah, it's kind of the, the power of compounding, but in the wrong direction. Uh, you'll see, you know, credit cards talking about minimum payments and this and that. Fortunately, there's now uh, laws that are going to require them on the statements. You know, hopefully people are reading them to at least see, well, if you pay the minimum amount, it's going to take you 26 years or whatever it, it may be to pay this off. And you're going to pay 10 times the amount of interest than if you paid off, uh, paid this off more quickly over a three-year schedule or something like that, but they'll show you a couple different payment options. But I would say that's uh, probably one of the biggest things that gets lost is how much extra interest gets paid and really how much of our payment is just treading water, so to speak. If you're just paying the interest, servicing the debt, then you're not actually paying down any principal. That debt is never going to go away unless you're actually paying the principal on top of paying down the debt. So I think that's really important to be aware of. Uh, and then also variable rates, uh, home equity lines are a big one where this was a, a low cost way for people to access money for many years. But a lot of them had uh, on a line of credit, it had a variable interest rate, prime interest rate plus 
X plus one, plus one and a half, something like that. Now those home equity lines, a lot of people are suddenly facing interest rates of 10% or close to it. And it's really snuck up on them, unfortunately, as a result, uh, because of what we've seen in interest rates going up so much over the last uh, year and a half year. Good, uh, I mean, a great point. So if, if here's this money, so set aside over here, <clears throat> and then somebody says, well, you know, you've got this into short-term CDs. Um, how do you break it up? Now, it, it can't all be in short-term CDs, you know, and, and where do you go there from there? Uh, Longer-term yeah. CDs? Do we go back in the market? Do we get advice? And Well, I guess there's two parts to this. One is just how we want to invest our money, period. Uh, and again, comes down to risk tolerance and time horizon. I'm building the emergency fund to be safe, first and foremost, the th first three to six months, checking, savings, money market accounts. From there, I'll build in the stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs. Uh, whether I'm looking at my non-retirement accounts or say my TSP or other retirement assets, that all impacts my time frame. Uh, the longer it's going to be till I access that money, whatever bucket it is, it may be different for the retirement bucket or the non-retirement bucket, then I can afford to have more risk because I don't, I'm not as worried about what the account's worth today, more worried about what is it going to be worth five years from now, 10 years from now, or whenever I need it. And then my risk tolerance just being my overall comfort level with volatility and how I'm going to invest as a result. So it's really those two in combination which would give us our recommended investment allocation. Uh, if you've heard of a 60-40 portfolio, 80-20, first number is the total amount in stocks, second number, total amount in bonds and cash. Uh, and at the end of the day, for any investment account, I want to be thinking through what is the right allocation given uh, the parameters, the time horizon and risk tolerance. Uh, and then that's going to gear from there how I would actually be investing that money. On the debt side, though, uh, one of the things to balance is, you know, should I be paying off a debt or investing? Sometimes people will look at, I've got X amount in my savings accounts, and then I've got this credit card that I've been paying down. And, you know, which one's better? Should I be, should I be building up my emergency fund or building up assets, or should I be paying down the liability? And one of the best ways to think about that is going to be my cost as for the debt compared to the rate of return on the investment. If I've got a credit card at 15% and I have money sitting in a savings account earning two, three or four, then that's a really obvious scenario. I definitely want to go in, take that savings money and pay off that debt as, as quickly as possible because it's just earning less than the debt is costing me. Wow. So, so in class, uh, do you ever have any surprise questions? Or are you surprised that you don't get questions? And how do you how do you uh, keep the class going? Yeah, I mean, in, in regards to debt, some of it is along that the same line of you know, let's say I've got an option to put money into TSP. Do I want to put more money in TSP, or do I want to be paying down debt instead? And not only do I need to think about the rate of return versus the interest rate, but I also need to think about my risk reward trade off. Uh, there's no guarantee my TSP is going to go up 10% this year. It might be up 20, but it might be down 20. But I can be pretty certain my debt is going to cost me whatever that rate is. So not only do I need to think about the rate of return versus the interest rate, but also the risk associated with it. And if I'm going to invest, instead of paying down a debt, I really need that investment to be expected to earn a little bit more to compensate me for that extra risk I'm taking. All right, here's a, a question that came in on the net. Isn't a six-month emergency fund more appropriate with a possible government shutdown and so much uncertainty in the world? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, a again, a three- to six-month emergency fund is ideal. But if you are looking at any kind of volatility as in a possible government shutdown or just anything else unique to your situation, then those could be reasons to go longer. So maybe I, I want more than the six months even. Maybe I want nine months or something above and beyond that. Nothing wrong with having more uh, higher emergency fund. When we talk about 
three to six. I'm really saying three is an absolute minimum, but ideally six months plus. All righty, one more question, and I think it's time for a break. Is the Roth IRA the last retirement vehicle that one should use? Does your guest believe in the Roth IRA? So, yeah, when I'm thinking about distribution order, I would typically say that, yeah, the Roth is going to be the last one I want to use. Main reason for that being that I'm getting tax-free growth on that money. Uh, so why would I want to give that up? If I have money in a savings account, I'm paying taxes on interest, dividends, even a non-retirement account on my capital gains. So I definitely prefer to get tax-free growth as opposed to taxable growth. There's times when maybe I need to kind of blend in the Roth distributions with the, uh, blend that in with the other money, say TSP or IRA. But for the most part, I would use that last. Uh, and I definitely do feel personally feel that it will remain tax free. Uh, you can't offer a benefit to the general public for decades and then suddenly go in and massively change the tax treatment on it. Um, in my opinion. So I don't I don't have any reason to think that they're going to suddenly go in and pull the rug out from under uh, people that have been saving their entire retirement based on the tax guidelines that are in retirement accounts. OK, well, it's time to take a break and we'll listen to what the sponsor of the show, WEPA, can do for the listeners. Times have changed, but WEPA's mission remains the same to promote the health, welfare and financial well-being of civilian federal employees. WEPA offers group term life insurance to civilian federal employees with up to $1.5 million in coverage, regardless of salary. As a WEPA member, you can access exclusive rates and benefits not available to the general public. How does this compare to Fegley? Unlike Fegley, WEPA's coverage amounts are not capped by your salary. WEPA will cover your family as well. For your children, WEPA offers double the benefits that Fegley offers. And for your spouse, WEPA offers 20 times more coverage than Fegley. 20 times more coverage! WEPA's coverage is also portable if you decide to leave the federal government or retire. You can even supplement or replace your existing policy. See how much you could save by visiting waepa.org today. All right. Well, now we're back. So. We've got another couple of questions, but um, were there any loose ends that we didn't tie up um, before the break? Um, as far as, no, I, th I mean, I think as far as Roth IRA and emergency fund stuff, we pretty, you know, pretty well covered that. Uh, as far as paying down debts, you know, I would just add that it is, does make sense to think about consolidation options. Uh, we had really good opportunities a couple years ago where what's the largest debt for most of us are mortgage and we saw opportunities uh, to refinance. No one is necessarily going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you could move this debt to a lower rate. So we really always want to keep our eyes and ears open for opportunities. When rates have been going up, it's going to be harder to find those opportunities. But there's still credit counseling services that are out there. Uh, maybe it's even credit card offers to move from one rate to a lower, validate that debt. Uh, I definitely want to think about what my rate is and keep my eyes and ears open if there's any opportunities to lower it. Every dollar that I can save by paying less interest is an extra dollar cash flow wise that could be going towards my TSP or other savings. Okay, I've got another question. Now, these questions, uh, folks, come in uh, on um, on the net, if you will. So, here we go. Is withdrawing money from the TSP and delaying one's Social Security a smart move with higher tax brackets potentially looming in the future? Yeah, great question. Uh, this is This is not a absolute yes or no answer. Uh, I've run plenty of comparisons with retirement projections showing clients, you know, if we start social security earlier, well, we can hold off on pulling as much out of TSP, let that money grow. Flip side of that being, you know, if we just withdraw money from TSP, we're going to get a higher payout. 
Uh, I think the first thing that ideally I want to do is figure out my social security break-even points before I even think about the TSP impact. So when I look at that, uh, typically when I'm looking at 62 early versus 67 normal retirement age or 70 delayed, I will see the, the early decision versus normal decision. I'll see that break even somewhere around 78, 79, something like that. So I think if there aren't other health issues, uh, if I don't have a, a big personal concern that social security is going to run out and we may get to, to that in more detail. Um, but otherwise, you know, assuming I think I have a life expectancy beyond 78, 79, uh, I'd rather try to wait to at least normal retirement age. Now, when I think about normal retirement age, 67 for most of us versus delaying all the way to age 70, uh, that break even point gets pushed back a little bit. It's typically early eighties, maybe 81, 82, uh, up to 83, something like that. So I think that's an important baseline to just kind of know if I'd like to delay social security or not before I start thinking about, uh, the opportunity cost to pull out from TSP. Uh, so once I have that, then I need to look at the actual dollars involved here. If I were to wait on social security, you know, how much of my TSP am I really going to have to tap into? If it's a substantial amount, uh, then that may really impact me down the line. I think trying to gauge what I'll get in earnings from my TSP makes sense as well. If I had a conservative investor, that money's going to sit in the G fund while well, pulling out of TSP early isn't necessarily going to cost them as much in earnings versus if someone is investing a little more aggressively, yes, there's risk there, but there's higher potential rate of return that they're missing out on. So I think there's, you know, every situation is a little different, but there's a crossover point. I think pulling some money from TSP to get from early retirement to normal retirement age is okay, but I need to be careful with it. You know, I don't want to be massively drawing down on my TSP just to get to those later ages because of the fact I'll have so much less assets later. So I know that's uh, a bit of a long-winded answer, but it really does depend on all those underlying factors when I'm trying to make that core decision. Oh, okay, I got another one. I think this is the last one. All right, how, how does one address the additional cash flow from Social Security benefits? When does one apply? That's a, that's, that's a long-winded answer to that one. I believe the 25% across-the-board cut in 2034 is a foregone conclusion which, with regards to the turmoil in Congress. So how do you, how do you feel about that? I mean, if, if you had the key to open up the door and fix all that, we wouldn't be on the air. But uh, what do we... What's our first shot? At yeah, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. So I'd say first, let's just talk about cash flow from Social Security, and then let's get into uh, some of the issues facing Social Security uh, down the line here. So I think, I mean, any additional cash flow from Social Security is obviously a benefit. Uh, we're just going to have more income coming in. There can be a tax bill associated with it, of course. Uh, but it's really just figuring out the timing, how that cash flow factors in with the FERS annuity and TSP withdrawals and everything along those lines. So I think looking at retirement projections where you can see year over year what your total income may be, the tax bill, how that lines up with your income needs, and then what your potential withdrawal from assets would be, that's an important part of retirement planning. As far as the issues facing Social Security, uh, so, you know, I think what the question is referring to here is that our Social Security Trust Fund is expected to be depleted in the next 10 years. Uh, that does not mean that Social Security would just go away. It means that new tax inflows are projected to cover about 75 to 80% of benefits. I've seen that projected out through the end of the century. doesn't mean those projections couldn't change, but as we actually get closer to the end of the century, gets closer to about 80% covered than the 75 we'd be facing. Uh, so, you know, when the question is asking about a 25% across the board cut as a foregone, foregone conclusion, I don't think that I necessarily agree about it being a foregone conclusion. I think I've heard many different debates about ways to fix Social Security. Now, obviously, getting things through uh, Congress, the House, et cetera, isn't an easy task. So I 
will not at all be surprised if this problem just kind of continues to get pushed down the road over the next 10 years, much as we haven't dealt with our national deficit, et cetera. Uh, but the bottom line is I, I don't think it's going to be very popular uh, really on, on either side or by anyone to just go in and slash benefits 25% for retired individuals, many of whom are counting on that money to pay their rent or mortgage, to put food on the table, et cetera. So I think the people that are, are probably least likely to be impacted are those receiving, immediately receiving benefits. Um, whereas if we get a bit further down the road, the people that are going to be getting benefits in the future, I think it's more likely that they see either some kind of a benefit reduction or a tax increase. Uh, those are really the two major ways to address the problem. Uh, I've seen studies look at both and surprisingly, somewhat surprisingly, it really wouldn't take that much to get the system back on track. Um, aside from doing a straight benefit reduction. You know, we could lower the inflation rate uh, that we're compounding benefits, that we are uh, indexing earnings, things like that. Uh, we could change the normal retirement age. We've already seen that. Just as normal retirement age has increased from 65 to 67, maybe that turns into 68, 69, or 70. And, and that is a benefit reduction of sorts. On the flip side of that, uh, we could have tax increases, whether it's raising the income threshold or the amount that's paid into Social Security, that could get the system back on track uh, or some combination. Yeah, anytime we're talking about reducing benefits or increasing taxes, there's going to be a lot of people that aren't a fan of one or both. Uh, but we we do have options to get things back on track. And most importantly, you know, we wouldn't just see Social Security go away completely or anything like that. So with all your fine, fine words, how does somebody that maybe is moderately familiar with financial planning or a little less, and you know, people hear it and they shy away from it and go into CDs or something because of, of the risk factor. How do you, I'm not gonna say, how do you talk somebody into it? You'd never wanna talk somebody into something that they'd be uncomfortable with. But what do you find the hurdle to get beyond risk tolerance? Well, what I like to go through with someone is a risk tolerance questionnaire. Uh, most advisors have specific risk tolerance questionnaires they're using. But even someone, you know, let's say you're just managing your TSP on your own and you're not sure, uh, you could go to an online search, look up different risk tolerance questionnaires. Uh, sometimes people even use the life cycle funds as a baseline, I'll say, hey, yeah, if you haven't, you're not ready to go through this whole process of figuring out time rise and risk tolerance, you can always just see what the TSP is recommending. Doesn't mean they're right or wrong. They don't know your personal risk tolerance. But if you tell them that I need the money in 2030, 2040, 2050, well, they have a fund that's going to show you what they recommend. Uh, I can specifically look at CSNI, that's my stock exposure, how much money's there, how much is in GNF, that's my fixed income. Again, I think it's really important for everyone to understand how their money's actually invested. You, know, you can't figure out if you should be making changes if you don't know what you're invested in in the first place. And that is going to start by figuring out how much of, whether it's TSP, an IRA, a non-retirement account, figuring out what do you have in the stock market versus what isn't. You know, is it a 60-40 portfolio? 60% stocks, 40% fixed income? Is it 80-20? Is it 20-80? So from there, I think you can use that as a baseline. Uh, and getting back to, you know, the question with clients that are very maybe conservative and aren't comfortable with risk, uh, again, I, I think it depends on the situation, what they're comfortable with and their time frame. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't try to convince clients to invest in the market if they're not comfortable with it. But I do want them to be aware of how they answer these questions, their time frame, and, and kind of what the models recommend as far as how much risk they should be taking. And then if they want to be more conservative than that, and they understand they're losing upside, but they're getting security, uh, then that's fine. At the end of the day, we each have to make a personal decision how comfortable we are investing our money. Uh, but you can at least make an informed decision and going through the process, understanding kind of how, you know, how it's recommended for you to invest is a really good starting point. And then deciding about 
how you do want to invest your money and what allocation you're comfortable with. So in, in um, your career, how have you, if, you, if you've looked at a client that, uh, you know, very nice and whatnot, um, but when they hear the term risk, like you just mentioned, they kind of freeze. Risk doesn't mean risky. Um, the, uh, a CD, I guess, is semi-guaranteed. Government bond is semi-guaranteed. But you're going to be able to earn some type of return on your investment. But in order to accumulate the money to take you into retirement, you got to bring some of those dollars out. So how do you lead somebody from 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 that description into, hey, why don't we try X, Y or Z? And what kind of funds could they be invested in or do or do they look at particular stocks? Well, yeah, in terms of thinking about risk, there's really a little bit of risk with everything. Uh, if we just put our money under the mattress, you know, there's some inflation risk there. My dollar isn't going to be worth as much a year from now, two years from now, five years from now with purchasing power just because of inflation. So every year that I'm not at least earning what inflation is, then I'm, I'm losing purchasing power. So I'm going to have risk even if I choose the most conservative investment option. Uh, if I move up the ladder a little bit, then maybe I go to a bond. And when I have a bond, I'm lending money to the federal government, a corporation. They're going to pay me interest in the form of coupon payments, then give me my principal back at the end. Uh, but there's risk there as well. I'm going to have the risk of default. They can't pay me back. Or what we saw really plague the bond market last year, interest rate risk, where when rates go up, all those bonds I'm holding paying lower yields, they're all going to be worth less. So I'm going to have risk even in those conservative investment options. Uh, obviously, as I move into the stock arena, there I'm getting a small share of ownership in these companies. And there's the risk that uh, they're worth a lot less, that they go bankrupt, things like that. But I can diversify away a lot of that risk. I don't want to hold one stock. I want to hold hundreds or thousands. And that way, if a couple of them go belly up, I'm not losing everything. And those shares of ownership in all these major corporations are still going to have value. So there's always going to be risk there. I can't ever really get away from it. It really does just circle back to the same time horizon, risk tolerance, and figuring out what the best allocation is and then how I want to allocate my money from there. Okay, so in, in planning, coming out of the non-investment world and going in the investment world, I think you covered, covered everything well. But... The, the 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 last one would be okay i've done some good things with my money over the years uh it wasn't all in cds and treasuries and uh and uh when do i um, pull off the gas pedal a little bit so now i'm going into retirement and i i really need to know that i have enough set aside should there be an issue so that would also kind of come back to looking at retirement projections. What I typically want to think about is going to be what is my income need in retirement? I think that's a big part of going into retirement. Uh, cash flow wise is going to be thinking about what changes could I have cash flow wise in retirement? What's going to go up? What's going to go down? You know, my planning to be out golfing, boating, taking cruises, other expensive hobbies, or am I going to be gardening, reading books, leading a less expensive lifestyle? So I, I need to think about that income need for one. And then I want to think about my income sources, FERS annuity, social security, withdrawals from TSP and things like that. So, yeah, it's easy for me to just say, well, your time horizon, look at your time horizon. But how do I figure out what that time horizon is going to be? And a lot of that does come back to the cash flow side of things. So a good starting point for my retirement income need would maybe be to, to assume 70 to 80 percent of my pre-tax retirement income. Uh, but I also want to look at what I'm spending today and then how that's going to change in retirement and kind of come up with a baseline and maybe even a range. Uh, that's the first part of any retirement plan is looking at what that income need could be. Then I look at the FERS annuity and Social Security. I figure out what amount that's going to cover. 
and that will show me what the gap is. You know, let's say I'm going to need 50,000 a year, but my income sources are only going to cover 30. Well, that's going to tell me that I need to pull 20K a year out of my investment accounts. Once I get a sense of that, then, okay, now I know how much money I'm actually going to access. So that gives me the time horizon part of it. Uh, and I can really figure out what kind of allocation that I should be setting up as a result. Uh, so I think it's very important part as we get closer and then really even as we get into retirement to think through what those cash flow needs are going to be and then how much our sources will cover because that is going to in turn drive everything as far as the TSP allocation and the other assets. Okay. So Brian, how does somebody get in touch with you? <laughs> because all the, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I can be reached uh, either through my direct line, 703-287-7139, uh, or through my website, which is just my full name, which is www.briancurris.com. That is B-R-I-A-N-K-U-R-R-U-S.com. So briancurris.com. I've got my contact info as well as uh, financial planning, newsletters, articles, videos, things like that. Very good. So I think it's time to take a break and let the uh, folks listening know a little bit about NITP. Who do you trust when making your most important decisions? National Institute of Transition Planning has been the trusted source for federal retirement planning, serving new, mid-career, and pre-retirement federal employees for more than 30 years. NITP's subject matter experts bring more than 800 years of collective expertise on federal benefits, financial, transition, and estate planning. Visit NITPinc.com. That's NITPinc.com to sign up for their free monthly newsletter and information about free webinars. Are you at the mid-career stage of your federal career, or do you plan to retire in the next five years and wonder if you are prepared for retirement? No matter what career stage you are, it's never too early to dot the I's and cross the T's. NITP now offers online open enrollment training to help you understand your federal benefits package and financial planning options with tips and tools to plan and fine-tune your retirement planning goals. Visit NITPINC.com to download the current brochure and calendar. All righty. Welcome back to the final leg of today's show. We're here with Brian Curris, certified financial planner, and uh, providing us a clear insight into financial planning and the um, different opportunities in there. So, Brian, we got all of uh, 15 minutes, Andrew. Andrew, the ever-efficient engineer. Hey. Well, one of the things that uh, I wanted to cover in terms of debt payment strategies is our mortgage. Uh, it's, a, it's a big one. I come across countless federal employees that want to go into retirement debt-free, and this is the last hurdle to get there. So they may look at pulling a big chunk from savings or pulling a big chunk even from TSP or accounts like that to pay down our mortgage, and you know, sometimes they'll ask, is, is that a good idea? Are there any issues with doing that? Uh, so first and foremost, sometimes I'm a big fan of paying down the mortgage and sometimes I'm not. Uh, it really depends on the interest rate. Uh, there's an opportunity cost to everything. If I'm pulling a bunch of money out of savings or my TSP to pay down my mortgage, and I'm one of those people that refinanced back in 2020 and got a two and a half or two and three quarters interest rate, uh, then I'm not, I was a fan of it back then to make extra payments, but I'm not a fan of it now. You know, when I pay down that mortgage or pay towards it, when am I going to see that money again? Uh, I'm going to see it when I don't have a mortgage payment and I, and I'm saving the interest on it. But if that interest rates two and a half percent, then it's really not saving me that much in interest. And the fact of the matter is we are now in a world that we haven't been in for the last 15 plus years where I could take that money that would be paying down my mortgage and I can put it in a CD or a savings account or money market account and get four or 5% plus. So why would I want to tie up the money in home equity and save two and a half percent on my interest 
just instead of keeping that account liquid and earning 5%. I'd rather have it liquid and earning the five uh, versus the flip side of that would be, let's say someone took out a mortgage this year and got a 7% interest rate. Well, in that instance, now I would, I would certainly like to pay down that mortgage early. It's going to be a much bigger bill and it's much harder to find investments that are going to earn 7% plus. And if you do, they probably have a lot of risk associated with them. Uh, so I, I, I find a lot of people that got in the habit of paying down their mortgage when we couldn't get anything in savings. And now that doesn't necessarily make sense to do it. I'd rather just keep the money liquid knowing I have the option of paying down the mortgage. And the fact of the matter is if rates go back down, then we're getting zero on our savings accounts again. Well, then maybe you pay it off at that time or make the extra payments then. All right. So, uh... What we've talked about you know, to me is interesting. I hope everybody listening as well. But not everybody, you know, I, I'm an accountant and then I do tax returns and whatnot, <clears throat> kind of phasing out of the work world, but nonetheless. But, you know, you're on the, um, you're dealing with people and their money. Um, taxes are extremely important, but not, I think money management is a whole lot more important um you know you're going to pay tax on some things maybe tax-free bond you're not going to pay any tax on the uh, interest but a regular bond you might sure. but in your discussions and in your classes what do you find um you know we both were talking and and um we you know we're in our world and they're in their worlds and sometimes they don't understand our world so what do you find the biggest hurdle with investing is with uh, people, clients, and uh, like discussions like we're having today? So one we've touched on a little bit already, uh, and, and then the second we haven't. So one is when to make changes. Um, and, you know, I've hopefully you're, you've, as I've continued to kind of say this and drill it into people's heads, well, it's time horizon risk tolerance. But one of the big questions I'll get is, you know, well, when should I? When should I get out of the market in my TSP or when should I scale back? What's the age when I should scale it back? Or, or someone in a seminar will just put in the chat, you know, hey, I'm, I'm turning 50. Should I make a big change in my TSP allocation? And again, what works for one 50-year-old may not work for another. When is that person going to retire? How long till they start withdrawals? How long are they taking those withdrawals for? Uh, those are all things to think about. You know, On that time horizon front, not, not all time horizons are created equal. If I'm saving up for a down payment, when I go to closing, I'm going to need all the money. If I'm saving up for college, then maybe I spend a fourth freshman year, but I'm probably spending that full bucket over a four or five year window. When I go into retirement, hopefully I'm not spending the whole TSP in year one. So I want to be aware of the year that I'll need it, but I also want to think about how long I may need it for. Yeah, I mentioned we could use the life cycle funds as a starting point to kind of gauge how TSP recommends doing it, but they don't know what your distribution plans are on the back end. So they do get pretty conservative those last five years. They actually go from about 60% stocks down to 30% because they have no idea if your intentions are to spend all the money or only a small part of it. And that's why doing the planning on your own makes sense. Uh, so that is always one of the big questions is how we should change our investment allocation. Uh, but the second part is then how to actually allocate the money. Uh, and again, I'll reference the life cycle funds. They'll give you a template as far as the recommendation, meaning how much should you have in the C fund versus the S versus the I. I do want to diversify. I want to spread the risk out. I want to get exposure to more companies, uh, but I also need to have some parameters on that. I don't necessarily want to just divide the money evenly between CS and I. Uh, so I want to think through some things with that. And again, I think using life cycle funds is a good way to start, uh, at least in terms of thinking through those allocations. Uh, but I want to I want to pay attention to how my money's actually invested, as well as the big picture of what my allocation looks like. Yeah, interesting what you just said. With, with dealing with clients, you know, they come in different um, flavors, if you will, and the same thing in the accounting world. Some people say, here, take this and, you know, I don't want to get audited, um, but they don't want to hear anything else. With investments, I don't know that it's the same thing because investments, um, you know, taxes are very important, but investments, uh, you know, you have to pay attention to that. 
So how do you work then with somebody that just doesn't have a real good grasp on what a stock is or a mutual fund? You know, they know what they are, but they don't know um, which may be better for them than not. Yeah. Well, again, if we get back to basics, when I get a stock, I'm getting a very small fraction of ownership in a company. And there's a lot of risk with one stock. That company could go belly up and I could lose everything. But if I have hundreds or thousands of stocks, then having small bits of ownership in them, I can see their assets, liabilities, the price compared to their earnings. That's a core fund fundamental, our, their PE ratio. Uh, that gives me a good idea of what the stock should be worth or trading at. And then on the bond side, lending money to a government or corporation and one bond may default. But if I've got 10,000, as I do in my F fund tied to the U.S. aggregate bond index, uh, then I'm getting a lot of diversification there. So stocks will definitely have more volatility, but there can be some volatility with both. Uh, and again, it really just kind of comes down to the time frame. You know, if you see a big dip last year, but you didn't withdraw all the money, uh, then you've got time to recover. And we've seen some of that recovery take place this year. And, and that's why our time frame is so important. Uh, part of that kind of comes back to the, the overall cash flow planning as well. You know, I'll see people that want to just put everything aside towards TSP and retirement. Uh, but what happens if I've got bills that come up that are unexpected and I need money this year and I don't have enough saved in my emergency fund? You know, I get stuck paying down. Uh, I get stuck creating debt or doing a hardship withdrawal or TSP loan that I'd rather avoid. Uh, so this may seem a little crazy coming from a financial advisor, but sometimes I'll recommend that clients scale back the TSP contributions just for a little bit, maybe just for a couple months uh, in order to at least build up to that three to six month threshold for the emergency fund, and then go back and increase their TSP contributions from there. Uh, yes, I want to save as much as possible for retirement, but I don't want to be stuck where all my money's in retirement accounts and I've got no liquid assets and then I'm running up a credit card as a result. So it's good to have a little bit of balance. And I think that's important as well as thinking about the individual investment components. All right. I'm looking at the clock and we got about five minutes, Andrew. Yeah, about five minutes. So what, what do you feel if you were looking back, what was one of the things that you suggested to folks or an individual and it really turned out good but they were very anxious about dealing with a financial planner or finances in general um i well as far as what people come to me that they're anxious about uh and then they're happy they looked at it i, I guess that's twofold uh, that would be a retirement projections. Do I have enough money? Am I going to run out of money in retirement? And again, you can you can think through the concepts a little bit. You can run retirement income modeler on TSP.gov. Uh, they have a federal ballpark estimate, which kind of helps show you if you can replace your income. Uh, but that still doesn't replace doing a detailed retirement plan. So I'll sit down and go through specific projections of what someone's income assets may be in retirement and then what that looks like year over year and that helps take a lot of the uncertainty out of the equation uh, of what things would look like so i, I think i well i think running through retirement projections is an important component uh for people to think about uh but then also in just in terms of the yeah the investment allocation as well making sure they've they understand how they're allocated and how much risk they're taking and then how, how that aligns or doesn't align with where they should be if they need to rebalance their investments and things like that. So I think those are rightfully so two important areas uh, that clients worry about that they, that they need to be worried about. All right. Uh, one more request. How's your, what's your contact point before we get rushed for time? <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Again, if anyone wants to reach out, any follow-up questions, et cetera, happy to help if I can. Uh, my direct line, 703-287-7139. Uh, and my email address has my contact info on it. Uh, it's www.briancurris.com. And that's spelled B-R-I-A-N-K-U-R. 
S-T-R-R-U-S.com. And like I said, ha- happy to help anyone out with any follow-up questions on this content uh, if I can. Okay, what do we got? Three minutes, Andrew? <clears throat> two minutes. So we got a two-minute drill here. <laughs> yeah, final, well. Final, final comments. Sure. I think kind of getting back to basics with cash flow, it's very important to A, understand do you have a positive cash flow, negative cash flow? If you have no idea, you know, look at what's in your checking and savings accounts now. What did you have six months ago, a year ago, two years ago? Let's net out any large one-time deposits or withdrawals. That'll give you a sense if you have a positive or negative cash flow. Uh, from there, you know, my cash flow planning really is budgeting. I'm not just looking at the expense side. I'm looking at where all the money's going. Uh, I can't necessarily just double my inflows. You know, I can work hard, progress in my career, but I only have but so much money coming in each month. So if I want to net out more into my savings, then I need to reduce expenses. Uh, so that is a really important area to look at. And a lot of setting ourselves up for financial success is making sure that we're not living beyond our means, that I'm keeping those expenses in line. Uh, in terms of budgeting and things like that, there are all kinds of different tools out there. Uh, I can, whether it's an app store, online search, just creating your own Excel or, or worksheet, you know, all of those systems work. I just think it's important to understand what do you have coming in each month? Where is it going? Uh, and if I'm designing my budget or my cash flow worksheet from scratch, uh, keep the number of categories pretty limited. Uh, a lot of times if people have done budgeting at some point in the past, they wind up with 75 different categories. Whole thing becomes pretty daunting or overwhelming, winds up getting scrapped as a result. So try to keep it simple, track what's coming in, where it's going. Then you can figure out what improvements you want or need to make from there. So I think that's a really important uh, first step in getting yourself organized and tracking your cash flow. Perfect. And perfect timing. Andrew's saying you, you don't have too much more time. So <laughs> this is great. Thanks great. again for, for, for being on the show. Clarity. Thanks for having and, me. All righty. Andrew, thanks for keeping us live. And um, everybody listening, hope you learned something today. Bye-bye. You've been listening to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and sponsored by WEPA. Please tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. for a topic solely devoted to you, the federal employee. This show can also be heard on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search For Your Benefit. Thanks for listening.